all three of you, you can head on. I don't think, <clears throat> I don't think there's little kids. Nope. All right. Miss Cindy's got them. Uh, well, okay. Well, as, as long as you miss him, that's... Sometimes it's good to start at the very beginning. I'm told it's a very good place to start. But there are other times when it's helpful to start at the end and work your way back. Start with what's clear. Start with what you know. Now, Psalm 19 is not difficult to understand. In fact, it's pretty straightforward. What's confusing about Psalm 19 is how it fits together. Several scholars argue that Psalm 19 is actually parts of two different songs that they just stuck together. Verses 1 through 6 are clearly one psalm, they say, and verses 7 through 14 are another. Now, I had a hard time with that line of thought. Uh, Granted, the men and women who assert that this might be two different songs squeezed together are much more educated and much, much smarter than this guy. But I, I couldn't shake the thought that these two seemingly different parts had to go together, that somehow this had to make up one psalm. One Bible professor, J.L. Mays, gives a very helpful tip for the study of Psalm 19. He suggests that we start not at the beginning, but at the end, with a confession of faith in verse 14. Look at Psalm 19, verse 14, the last verse. The psalmist, David, says, May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. These words, these meditations contained in this psalm then seem to compose an act of worship to the Lord Yahweh. This psalm is a song of worship, and it starts at the top. David, in awesome wonder, looks heavenward, and he worships the Creator as he views the visible and extraordinary creation around him. After that, after David looks at the top, He comes down, so to speak, to proclaim the glories of the Lord's verbal revelation. Now, no Bible was compiled yet, so David sings to the Lord of his powerful words spoken to his people. And then, as is fitting, David expresses the need of his own soul in light of the creation and the word of God. It's worship from the top down, this psalm. It's worship. It's seeing and hearing and speaking. It's a beautiful psalm. The the great literary master C.S. Lewis called Psalm 19, and I quote, the greatest poem in all of the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. I agree. I think it's easy to see why. Look with me at the first six verses and see if you agree. The greatest lyric in the world. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. And night after night they display knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Psalm 19 wants us to see. 
I love the Psalms for so many reasons, but, but maybe none more than the fact that they draw my attention to what I tend to ignore. The heavens keep reciting the glory of God and keep on highlighting the works of his hands. And yet we miss it a lot of times, don't we? The old expression goes, stop and smell the roses. And that's pretty good advice. And it's the same principle here. David would have a stop and see. He'd have a stop and look up. Go outside and look up more often than when there's a solar eclipse or a supermoon. Look at the heavens and ponder the God who placed all of it there. Attempt, go ahead and attempt with your finite brain to comprehend the creator of all things, the architect of the cosmos who spoke into existence all that you can see and all the many light years worth of territory you and I will never lay eyes upon. Ponder, wonder, worship. Sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, their dance cards are full, always in their scheduled spot or waltzing across the sky, whatever, whatever the Lord tells them to do, wherever the Lord tells them to go. Ponder, wonder, worship, and realize all this vast enduring monument to the creative power of God is but child's play to the creator, spun off the tips of his finger without even breaking a sweat. The heavens declare the glory of God. The root of the word glory has to do with weight. And so to use it of a person could refer to someone who is weighty, that is important or impressive. The heavens, we're told, declare the impressiveness, the the weightiness of God. And the skies proclaim the works of his hands. This speaks of power and ability, care, precision, even intricacy. God spoke, he spoke, and in that instant, light, sky, water, land, sun, moon, stars, fish, birds, animals, man. In a snap, everything was just exactly as he wanted it. It was perfect. He looked out and he said, it's good. The heavens declare, the skies proclaim. This cosmic preaching goes on repeatedly. God has clicked play and then repeat all on the the soundtrack of the heavens. And so it is. The heavens are declaring on and on. The the skies are proclaiming on and on. It's, It's their task. It's their job. It's their commission. They're doing just exactly what they were created for. And they never stop. Day after day, they pour forth speech. The heavens and the skies are simply bursting at the seams to tell us about their maker. And they just keep pumping out testimony about him. The heavens and the skies bubble up with praise. Creation cannot contain itself, but constantly, constantly proclaims the glory of God. Barrett has asked me to come forward today and to speak to you guys a little bit. We took the kids on vacation and to Yellowstone National Park. Perhaps some of you have been there. We had a wonderful time. I'm waiting for the picture to come up. But to me, as I was sitting there listening to Barrett speak, um, and I'll read once again just to kind of highlight the first of 
couple verses of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Well, there's a logical, natural extension to that. And that's a question. Do you? The heavens pour forth speech, but do you? The skies proclaim, but do you? Do you take the opportunity to um, express to others and share with others that glory um, which God has provided? So I'd like to go back to the beginning. Barrett talked earlier about starting with the end in mind. Let's look at Genesis 1 real quick in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And I was thinking about with my children, looking here over the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone, is the world darkless and empty for my children if I don't provide the wisdom and knowledge that they need and share that with them? That's my job as dad is to help fill in those blanks. But as Lindsay and I were traveling from Richel, Missouri to Yellowstone, we traveled up to Sioux Falls and then went across I-90 um, in South Dakota there. And every time we saw something wonderful and amazing, it didn't you know, ever pass Andrew or Matthew's mind about, well, look how beautiful that is, Dad, that God created that. And when we got to the Bighorn Mountains, look at the Bighorn Mountains. Aren't those beautiful? God created those mountains, and we had like 500 times to share with our children on that trip the uh, glory and majesty of our Lord, of his creation. But, you know, as we were going there and looking at the, at the river there flowing, and there's many different rivers that flow through Yellowstone National Park, the, the grandest of the rivers that you think about is the Yellowstone River, and there's Yellowstone Lake that's really tremendous, but there's a smaller river there in Yellowstone that Andrew and Matthew actually got to swim in, the Firehole River. But they're all crystal clear. They're beautiful. And, you know, because of all the granite and hard rock that they have here that we don't have around us, we have muddy waters here, but the boys were just fascinated with the, the clear waters. If you'll hit the next picture, please. There were lots of pools, and there are lots of color variations there, and depending on the temperature of the pools the bacteria would either be orange or it would be green. And Matthew, my little scientist, just found that fascinating and interesting that green bacteria grows at a different and lives in a different temperature than orange bacteria does. And, but once again, always relating things back to God and his creation. And, you know, at the front of our, um, of our bulletin today, it says, set your minds on things above, not on things. Um, Colossians 3 2. But if you read Colossians 3 1, it tells you to set your heart also on things above. So we should set our mind on things above, but our heart also on things above. And if your heart is on Jesus Christ at the right hand at the right hand of God on the throne, you're going to proclaim when you see this pool, not just what a neat pool it is of acidic water. Smells like sulfur, by the way. And Matthew kept saying, Dad, it smells like scrambled eggs. And Lindsay said, I don't know what they're cooking you at school, but it shouldn't be that. So we laughed about scrambled eggs versus rotten eggs and stuff. But do you, do you stop when you look at something majestic, and then do you think about the majesty of our Lord? Or do you just see 
a pool of sulfuric water. Hopefully not. Hopefully we go beyond that. So as we're, you know, we, we should be looking up at the skies above, and I understand that, but that doesn't mean we can't look at earthly things for inspiration, and we should. And it was just really nice to be in a place where if you look out, if, once you get into the park on the um, east side, we went through Cody, Wyoming, and went into the park. And on the east side, we got up to these high mountains at around 9,000 feet, somewhere around there. And we're looking out over Yellowstone Lake on Point Butte Lookout. And there's a little sign there, and I was reading the sign. And it shows you on the sign this image of a mountain, and you look out and you match the image down here with the image out here. And it says you are now looking out at the longest distance in the lower 48 without a road. And it was a little over 100 miles. And I thought, that's interesting. I had never looked at anywhere without a road so far. So unobstructed by man's hands, you know. And so many times in our day-to-day lives, we are looking at buildings and roads and other things we have to to navigate through the course of our day. But we should, from time to time, I think we should go see things that are majestic, that remind us how small we are. The Grand Canyon uh, did that for me. Lindsay and Mom and I went out there several years ago, and I just remember thinking as I was looking at this big hole in the earth how small I was. And the same exact feeling came over me at Yellowstone. Will you hit the next picture, please? There's Andrew swimming in the Firehole River. Is it cold, Andrew? No, no, not that cold, Dad. That was, oh, I love that part of it. I can still remember I was swimming in Tennessee when my dad took Richard and I out to the Smoky Mountains as kids, and Dad dared us to jump into the water, and we did. And I can still remember how cold it was, and I'm sure he will remember long after that how cold it was, but still, when Andrew got out of the water and he had a great time, he remarked to me what a beautiful river it was that God had created. So I knew I was on the right track because it was always about what a great river that God had created, what a great time he had swimming. And it really was a pleasurable experience for us, but not not for what I thought it was going to be when we went out there. I thought it was going to be about looking at grizzly bears, you know, on the top of my list. Let's see a grizzly bear, which we did. We saw grizzly bears on two different occasions. We got to see elk and antelope and deer and the things you would imagine. We even took a bet on the first animal we would see going into the park. Don't think big animal, think little animal. It was Alvin the Chipmunk running across the road that we saw first. But those were the things I thought I was going to gain from this trip. Well, dumb dad needed to wake up and realize, and my children reminded me of it. It wasn't about the animals. It was about the glory of God. And that's what they reminded me of many times over. So I'm very thankful for that. The next one, please. Once again, there's another picture of the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone. That's just beyond the lower falls. There's an upper falls and a lower falls there, and the waterfall's down about 100 feet. And, and every parent's had this moment where their child's leaning against and trusting a fence of, well, I'm, I'm hoping it was sturdy, but anyway, I had to yell at Andrew to get off the fence because he was close to what would have been certain death. And the next one, please. Um, go through that. Go to another one. Same, it's the same area. 
and keep going. Same waters. Yes, the trees there force you to look up. Out here along the edge of the Ozark Plateau, I mean, it looks a lot like Kansas here, as you know. We don't have a lot of images where we live here where you're forced to look up, but I like this picture because the trees force your eyes upward. And we had a lot of, you know, beautiful scenery. One more, please. There's that waterfall. The next one. Okay, so that's it. I guess um, what I'd like to say today, because I, I do love this psalm, and Barrett asked me to talk a little bit, the heavens declare every day, even in Rich Hill, Missouri, even on the flat land, the glory of God. And if we'll just take the time to see the majestic and the beautiful things around us, to always praise him, never miss an opportunity, um, to not only teach children about the, the um, glorious um, world that we have around us, creation of the Lord, but to remind yourself of that too. Thank you, Barrett. Thank you, Jimmy, for taking all those pictures and for sharing with us. The heavens, in fact, all of creation has a lot to say, doesn't it? They won't shut up about it. They, they keep on yapping and proclaiming and declaring. But the strange thing is, Psalm 19 tells us, it's totally silent. Verse 3, they have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. The heavens are proclaiming, but they don't verbalize anything. They aren't speaking aloud. And yet, we read one verse down, verse 4, their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. There are no words, verse 3, and yet their words, verse 4, go out to all the world. So, I mean, which is it, David? I think the psalmist is trying to make us think. It shouldn't trouble us when the psalm says there are no words and then says, well, yeah, there, there are. Another way to describe this would be nonverbal communication, mute communication that still communicates. It's the sort of thing that happens after you've been married for a couple of years. You might be out to dinner with some friends, and without her saying a word, you know it's time to leave. It might be a glance or a look or maybe a hand on the leg Women, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You all have that look. The, okay, it's time. Uh, Megan and I started communicating somehow unintentionally with our own form of Morse code. I'll be sitting with my arm around her out somewhere, and she might tap twice on my leg, just tap, tap. And I know that means let's go. And so we excuse ourselves and we go. Sometimes she'll tap three times, tap, 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 and I know that means I love you. Yeah, we are the cutest. Go ahead. That's right. This is all. Nothing is said, and yet the message is quite clear. David gives us an example of this nonverbal communication in the heavens. He speaks about the sun, about the sun's daily run across the sky, like it's some kind of daily distance runner and an all-day, every-day marathoner. As someone on earth would view it, from an earthbound perspective, it seems to be the sun running each day from east to west. In the heaven, he's pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to see his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. The sun's just doing its job. 
The sun isn't meant to be worshipped like it was by so many in that day. Egypt and Mesopotamia and other countries surrounding God's people all worshipped the sun. But the psalmist knows the sun isn't to be worshipped. Creation is not supposed to be worshipped. It's supposed to lead you to worship the creator. The one who stuck the sun right smack dab in the middle of our galaxy is the one who deserves to be praised. As you watch the sun doing its morning stretches before it heads out for its jog, as it warms up everything during the day, you and I aren't merely to think, yeah, well, it's the sun. No, there should be more than that. Don't we dole to this thing? All these beautiful things around us? I have friends that live in the mountains, in the Rocky Mountains, right smack in the middle of the Rocky Mountains. And when we visit, I'm like, man, this is great. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, <laughs> it's, it's all around you. But they've lived there for long enough, they're, they're numb to it. <clears throat> When's the last time you've thanked God for the sun? Thank you, Lord, for letting the sun wake us up and bid us good night. Thank you for warming us, even though, honestly, God, sometimes it's a bit much. I mean, you could cool it down a, a little. Thank you for making the sun to make the crops grow. What an incredible God you are, that the sun wakes up every morning and runs across the sky. Look up. Look around. See what God has made and give him praise. God's work of creation lets you see his silent splendor. True, we need to know we need to know more than what creation will tell us. But the heavens do declare a truth to us. And creation does so in a way that, that nothing else can. Words cannot express certain truths. But the constellations in the night sky, the majesty of the Grand Canyon, even the wind-blown wheat fields of Kansas, the lakes and the trees of the Ozarks, the splendor of the Rocky Mountains, the, the Joshua trees in Mexico, the painted desert, the, the rainforest, they all do a pretty good job. They're all very quiet, but they speak volumes. We're meant to see. We're meant to see, to see and worship. David continues, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, much more precious than pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from out the honeycomb. We need to see what God has made, the wonders and the works of his hands, but we also must hear, have to hear. There are no words when God speaks in creation, but there are most certainly words when God speaks in scripture. Notice, if you didn't already, as I'm reading through these verses, the repeated uses of the Lord's covenant name, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is the covenant name of the Lord. This is Yahweh. To us, it's, we just see Lord and gloss over it. But this is the personal covenant name of God. We're not dealing with a deity who stays at a distance. We're not dealing with a creator who created and then just stepped back and let everything do its thing. He's not merely the creator. He's the God who has come near. He's Yahweh, the one who is present among his people. He has drawn near to us. 
and he speaks. God has spoken, guess what, for us to hear. His law, his statutes, his precepts, his commands, his ordinances are for us to listen to and to hear his voice. It's perfect, trustworthy, right, radiant, pure, sure, righteous. The law of the Lord, the the Torah, David says, it's all there. It has and it offers everything you need. It's restorative. It's reliable. It provides stability like, like a set of training wheels on the back tire of a bike. Except that you'll never get to the point where your dad can take off these training wheels because you never get to a, the point where you don't need this. Never get to the point. We never outgrow our need for the testimony, the statutes, the commands, the, the law of the Lord. We could break this down phrase by phrase, law, statutes, precepts, and I'd love to do that. Really, there's a sermon in each phrase, and you're thinking, oh, no. No, 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 please, please don't. And I won't, because that's not really the point. David's not trying to get us to distinguish one phrase from the other. He just wants us to be bowled over by what God has spoken. He wants us, he wants to build for us a, a total picture of the Lord Yahweh's true, reliable, soul-renewing, life-preserving, joy-inducing, energy-giving word. And he wants it to hit us like a ton of bricks so that we can hopefully come to the point of saying something like verse 10. So our desire will match David's. They, speaking of the words of the Lord, are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey from out the comb. David values deeply the word of the Lord. It's valuable to him. He says it's sweet. The language here actually says that the words of the Lord are to be coveted. More than gold. It's not just desire, it's coveted. Most of our Bible translations clean it up a bit, and they use the word like desire or precious. We don't like the word covet. Covet is almost always in the negative, the the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. How dare you covet? But David says, "I, I covet the words of God. One summer when I was in Mexico, a lady was pointing And using a word that I didn't know, I I was pretty good with my Spanish. I spent several summers in Mexico, uh, had a a lot of college courses uh, in Spanish, and yet she kept just pointing and using this one word. And finally, Bruce comes up and rescues me, and he says, Barrett, she she says she covets that. She covets that. She was pointing at a mask. We'd made a mask for some craft at some VBS down there. And she was saying, if she'd have said, I want that, I could have understood, I get that, but she says, I covet that, give me, I I want it, I gave it to her, didn't get the word. There's a a wrong coveting, a sinful kind of coveting, and yet David makes it clear there's there's a holy coveting, a holy covetousness, a pure lust that ought to consume us. It's an, I really want that. And it's to possess the written word of the Lord and all its truths and promises. I covet the word of God. I I want it. Give it to me. I want it more than gold. To me, it's sweeter than honey, David says. History tells us that ancient rabbis would give their students some honey and would tell them to place it on their tongue and just let it sit there, to savor it, to enjoy it, and then to remind them that God's word is sweeter far than that honey. In fact, 
rabbis would say there's, there's nothing as sweet as God's word. William Tyndale, uh, some of you have Tyndale Bible commentaries. William Tyndale was the man who gave England a Bible in their own language, and then the church turns around and executes him for it. <laughs> they throw him in prison. They didn't like it. The Bible's supposed to be in a language that only a few very sophisticated people should speak, they thought, so they threw him in jail. And so he, he spent the winter months in Brussels, and he, he wrote to the person in charge of his imprisonment, asking him for uh, some, some items to prepare for the cold winter months. He says this. He says, I entreat your lordship that if I am to remain here during the winter months, that you would be kind to send me a warmer cap, for I suffer extremely from cold in the head. And all of us with perfect bald heads know exactly what he's talking about. Right? God only made a few perfect heads. The rest he covered with hair. Uh, give me a warmer cap. I suffer from an extremely cold head. A warmer coat also, please. What I have is very thin. Also, I need a piece of cloth to patch my leggings. I wish also for permission to have a lamp in the evening. It gets really boring in the dark. But above all, Tyndall says, above all, I entreat and beseech you to be urgent with this, that you may kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible. A warmer cap, a warmer coat, a lamp would be nice, some cloth to patch my leggings. But above all of that, if I don't get any of that, please give me my Hebrew Bible. They strangled him and they burned him till he died. But his desire to the very end was for God's word, to have God's word in his hand. This isn't some strange or special attitude that only the William Tyndales and Billy Grahams have. This is the desire of God's people, to hear from God in his word. If the God who has quietly spoken in his creation has stooped to speak clearly in the pronouns and the participles, the adverbs and the adjectives of his law, surely I should meet that with a proper obsession. Above all, give me my Bible. Surely God's excellent, perfect, flawless, trustworthy word should be met by my unrelenting appetite for the word of God. I should want to hear from him. I should want this more than I want to binge-watch binge what's ever on Netflix or read that, that new book that I have sitting on my shelf. I, I should want this. I should want to hear what he has said, to hear and worship. David concludes his psalm. He says, By them, referring to the words of God, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and the men of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. After seeing and hearing, we must speak. We have to speak. There are two sides that David picks up on. On the one hand, David, David knows that he's warned by the words of the Lord, by the precepts, the testimony, the commands. And on the other hand, he knows that there's great reward in keeping the word of the Lord. Having seen and heard everything he's seen and heard, David knows that he, 
He now has to speak. He has to confess his sins, his known sins, his willful sins, and his hidden sins. He even has to confess the guilt that he can't quite pinpoint. When confronted with the creator God, confronted with a God who has spoken, the Christian knows that it's time to speak, to pray, to confess, to repent. Standing out looking at God's creation, the Grand Canyon for me was, was the most incredible thing I've ever seen. Uh, I expect to never see anything that quite compares to the Grand Canyon. And I'm struck with the God who made all of that. And then I'm struck with the fact that I would so willfully sin against a God who made something that, inc- that incredible. God, you have only ever given me good things. I'm standing here in maybe the most beautiful place on the planet. And yet how often I ignore you and sin against you. You see the creation, you hear the word of God, and it should lead you to confess, to repent, to speak. Hearing and seeing the majesty of God, the perfection of God in his creation, in his word, both majestic, both perfect, will lead his people to reflect upon their failures, known and unknown, and and to rely on God's forgiveness. When we come under the weight and impressive influence of God, his glory, we will humble ourselves and say, like, like David did in Psalm 8, who is man, who in the world am I, that you, God, are mindful of me? And when we come under the perfection and the rightness of God's word, we'll be convicted, warned, spurred on to repentance. All of this, Psalm 19, all of it, is clearly worship. That's what, that's what holds the whole psalm together. It's not just, well, it's probably a song about creation and then a song about his word. No, it's, it's a song about worship from the top down. It's worship. We see what he has made and we worship. We hear what he has said, and we worship. We speak in response to what we've seen and heard, and worship. We worship the creator who has made us in his image. Stop and think about that. As beautiful as Yellowstone is, as beautiful as the Grand Canyon, as beautiful as it all is, we are the crown of his creation He's made us just a little lower than the heavenly beings and he's crowned us with glory and honor and he's put all things under our feet. We worship the Lord who speaks and who has spoken to us most directly, most vividly in his son Jesus who stooped down, who condescended to us taking on flesh and blood. The word of God among us. The word seen. And heard the word crucified and raised at break of dawn on the third. Would all of this lead us to worship, to speak, to proclaim what he has done and to share just how great he is? Can't you do that? Isn't that, as far as witnessing goes, I'm not asking you to go door to door and knock on people's house. Maybe that doesn't work quite like it used to. But can't you speak? I know I've heard all of you speak. Can't you speak and just proclaim the glories of God? The difference between us and creation is that we have to use our words. We have to speak. Let me, let me tell you, 
what God has done. The mercy that he's shown me. Let me tell you how great he is. And all of this should lead us to worship. See, hear, speak. Father, we thank you for your word, for your interest for us, for our enjoyment, for our pleasure, and for us to be astounded and worship you. Father, we thank you for your word, this incredible, majestic, perfect gift that we have setting here in our laps, that we can hold in our hands, that, that we can read each page and hear directly from the God who made us. And we can read about the Savior who saves us. Father, help us to see and to hear. And give us the courage and the strength and the boldness to speak. Not only in worship to you, but to speak to those who need to worship you. Help us to speak, to tell others about Jesus. To tell others the most incredible miracle that the Son of God came down. That he came down to us to save us and to set us free. To make someone like me right with you. What an indescribable gift. What an unbelievable miracle. May we not be silent. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's stand as we sing our closing song. Tyler, would you pray for us? Oh, just a second. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. Love you all.